0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School.
1: This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. My name is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-host, Adi Weiner. Some combination of myself, Adi, Cade Massey, and Shane Jensen are here every week on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio. This is the podcast version, so the Zoom version that we've been doing for, it's hard to believe, the last year. We've been on the air for now seven years. We're talking about everything from sports, statistics, and its interaction with business. And of course, we've been spending the last year or so talking about COVID in the first part of our show. Then we've been talking about sports and analytics. And of course, there are times at which they interact. So Adi, how are you today? It's great to be with you here on Wharton Moneyball. Yeah, it's certainly great to be with you today. Well, you know, we've always started. This is I mean, while of course, we always love it when all four of us are here. And this is actually maybe our first one of our first podcasts where all four of us haven't been here. um, This gives me an opportunity to grill you, our expert, both on applied (laughs) statistics and covid. Um, I get to ask you all the questions myself. So I'm very excited about that. And then, of course, we have a bunch of students joining us today who have put in some questions, which we'll be talking about in the second and third quarter of our show. So first, let's start the way we started every show for the last year or so, Adi, which is what's caught your eye in COVID? I have a bunch of things, but let's go to you.
0: Okay, so what's caught my eye in COVID is clearly um, uh, related to vaccination, and I'm just going to announce that I'm fully out of my first week after my second shot. Um, you've gotten the, both shots now. I've gotten both shots. What was the
1: time between your two uh, shots?
0: Uh the time between the two shots was three weeks and then I waited one week after this after the uh the second shot. Not that's what I am basically today. Um which is uh and the reason why I mention that is that this is of course Pfizer studied this and I have the Pfizer shot in pretty good detail, but it was a smallish study with 40,000 participants. And that's really not much in particularly since the infection rate is not uh, is, is still pretty low in the scheme of things. Um, they didn't have that much data. And we think it's, en- it's certainly enough to make a cl- strong conclusion, but not a lot. But now that um, uh, there's a couple of the HMOs in, in Israel. Um, they put together yeah, this is
1: I know where you're going. This is shocking data. This Keep is going. a great
0: data. So what so what they did? in Israel has gotten uh, has vaccinated um, nearly all of their over 60 um, and still lots younger than 60 without vaccination. Um, but they have they vaccinated over four million people, which is which is approximately half the population have had already two shots. And they actually what they did is is an observational study. Um, which is important because you can't really do an experiment in the real world on on hundreds of thousands of people. But what they did is for for a group of six hundred thousand people who had their vaccines, they matched them. It's so a classic tech, technique in statistics or matching. Each person was matched to someone similar age. Um, who just didn't get the shot. Of course, obviously, people who get the shots are different from people who don't get the shots, and that's a confounder that you, you really can't fully disentangle. So, what
1: would be, just to interrupt you for a second, just for our audience here on Wharton Moneyball, what mm-hmm. would be the common things that you would potentially want to match people on? You mentioned age, maybe age. race, gender, uh, I assume yeah. comorbidities, things like that? Absolutely.
0: Behavior is, an, is obviously another one that's really important. Um, so, and these things, are, one of the reasons why um, Pfizer made a deal with with Israel to give them so many vaccines so early, first of all, Israel paid twice the market price for them, uh, but was the, Israel has a great system of data analysis. So it's a, it's a small country where there's only four health systems and you have to be in one, and they have lots and lots of information. So they were able to construct this observational study because they have basically a full history on, on every on every citizen in the population.
1: Well, before you tell, to tell our audience what you found, I just want to make sure our audience is clear. The reason Adi is saying this matching is so important is, well, let's say... Eric Bradlow, you can give me the dose. What you'd love to be able to answer, which you can never do is the counterfactual of what if I haven't gotten it. But if you have a lookalike to me, you can kind of answer that question through statistical matching. So it would be wonderful if we could be our own controls. But in most cases, we cannot be our own controls because once you get the vaccine, you can't be in the no vaccine condition. So I just want to make sure everyone knows conceptually the idea. It would be great if we could be our own controls in many of these physical in many of these studies we cannot
0: so what they did is they tracked them for several weeks after they got to the point where i am exactly now and what they observed was of the 600,000 in each group Um, The the group that hadn't been vaccinated had something like 10 or 11,000 infections, which is which, by the way,
1: is very consistent with the one and a half to two percent rate. So this is not another nice thing about the data you're just giving us is someone could say, well, this was a biased sample. At least the marginal fraction appears consistent with what we've observed. So that's That's a good. That's good.
0: So there were about 10,000 people who were infected um, and in the group that had the vaccine, there were about 300 and that's a effective effective rate of about ninety three ninety four percent, which essentially confirms what Pfizer had been observing in their placebo but can control But could you tell us trial. how many?
1: Um, just because I know the data a little bit, could you tell us how many uh, deaths among those three uh, hundred?
0: None. There were none at, at this point. Um, um, so you are saying that yeah. there's
1: no deaths that's among right. six hundred thousand people that have been vaccinated.
0: Uh, yes, that's that's what I'm saying. I'm, sh- I'm sure that will change in the next month or two,
1: but n- n- no deaths. And four of, Um, there are four serious cases. OK, so my question to you is you know, it's not zero, but it's pretty close to zero. Um, should this answer the question? Should this put to rest? Like, let's imagine the hypothetical where everyone could get the vaccine right now. Let's imagine everyone could just instantaneously get the vaccine. Should that's what we expect? What should we expect? Essentially, the the seriousness of COVID just kind of goes away, assuming we don't know exactly how long the vaccine lasts, but let's assume people could get booster shots. Is this a definitive study? Zero out of 600,000 seems like pretty good odds to me.
0: Yeah, if everyone got the vaccine tomorrow, this would be finished. Um, there's there is an uh, the unknown is what's going to well how it will respond to variants. Uh, I- Israel has the British variant, which sort of dominates the country. The South African variant it does exist, but Pfizer and Moderna have claimed that um, that, that the vaccine works as well on those two um, variants. There are other potential variants down the line. It's what's interesting is that vaccines are not supposed to work by vaccinating everyone. The whole reason why a vaccine works is by slowing the reproduction rate so right. if and that 's why the minimum standard for approval was fifty percent ninety three or ninety four percent was extraordinary we didn 't need that and the reason why fifty percent is effective is essentially if instead of affecting two people, I affect one, if instead of affecting one, I affect a half, and that makes that changes the rate from increasing to decreasing yeah that 's the, that's the goal behind this and what what is so stra- extraordinary about the results is is and I hate to be so blunt about this but once you're vaccinated and you've had your second dose and you waited the amount of time you're pretty much good to go and 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 I think it's really important that this should this should
1: change behavior. All right, besides the envy that I have, I mean besides yes, the admiration I have for your two <laughs> no, doses no, no. is what I meant. <laughs> um so what is there anything that you did Notice I'm controlling for your prior behavior. Which was is nothing. Unfortunately, did? I did nothing. <laughs> yeah, right. that's why I'm that's why I'm saying it that way. But is there anything you did? Pro- Let me ask you. A qu- Let's be honest. Let's be honest. you and I are baseball guys, right? I Let's am. imagine there were a spring training, or the Yankees were opening up tomorrow, opening day. Would you go to the game? Oh, fantastically! I'm going
0: to be quite blunt, and I'm going to I want to make a a, 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 a maybe an announcement or something to discuss. So, my uncle, my my beloved uncle Lenny. Um, uh, he's in his 80, just turned 80. So happy birthday, Uncle Lenny. I'm sure he'll be listening. Um, and I've taken him to spring training games. He lives down in Florida and he's had his second vaccine. Um, and he said, I said, I was talking about maybe going down to spring training and going to a game. They're going to have about 25% of capacity available as far as I know at this point. And, and I was, and I was wondering whether Uncle Lenny would come with me. And he said, he wasn't sure. He's, I think he said yes, but And what I think this data suggests is that I think the answer should be yes. Um, Obviously, there's so many people who don't have, aren't vaccinated yet. And there is certain, I, I think that, that transmission is a lot lower among vaccinated people than unvaccinated people, but certainly isn't zero. Uh, people who, who are vaccinated could carry the disease um, at much lower rates. Yep. So that doesn't mean you should throw all caution to the wind,
1: particularly when you're an
0: indoor. Would you order.
1: wear a mask? If you went to a game, would you wear a mask?
0: Um, I, well, that's an interesting point because this is outdoors, and, and, and outdoor transmission has always been way it's way It's been less. lower, but just um, to be
1: safe. With your Uncle Lenny, 80 yeah. years old, Uncle Lenny. Who's Would been you vaccinated, you should and he's been um, vaccinated, too. Yeah,
0: prob, prob, you know, i have to say, certainly, that's a good question. Um, and, uh, I mean, I, I probably wouldn't wear the double mask that I was wearing before, before my vaccination. Well, let me,
1: let, me trans, <laughs> let me transition to that. And so I don't know, um, Adi, I put something in the rundown mm-hmm. that was very, very interesting that I downloaded from the CDC website. And so let me say what I've been doing. As you know, I announced this on the show two weeks ago. I've been double masking. I've mm-hmm. been wearing a KN95 mask, and then I've been wearing a, like a cloth, a, a surgical-like mask on top of it. And the CDC just came out with a guideline saying, not literally to Eric, but Eric, don't do that. You should really? not be wearing, you should not be wearing a KN95 with a mask on top of it. Why? I, I don't understand. They, I didn't see any study about it. But have you read anything to suggest I, that? I double-
0: haven't. Uh, uh, that, that seems counterintuitive to me. I wouldn't know how to respond to that.
1: OK, I was just I was uh, to me, that advice was entirely surprising. Well, advice. I, I'm not going to I
0: mean, the CDC has been quite um, inconsistent in a lot of its advice advice from the beginning. And at the forefront right now is, you know, what should be doing about about schools? And I think that extends to some of our, our students who are listening, um, you know, are and I think primarily to public schools, uh, secondary education, elementary school education. There is the diversity in this country between schools that are open and schools are and states and and counties that have open schools and those that don't is extremely um, large the the standard deviation if you will and CDC's guidance on this has been rather uh, you know I, I would say certainly flip floppy but also inconclusive and inconsistent I, I'm um, Jake Tapper who's a CNN uh, um, yep. host and is actually a local he went to my children's uh, uh, day school um, was essentially grilling the head of the, the Biden's new head of, uh, of sort of health and Corona about about the policies, um, essentially saying that they can't open up schools until until. Um, I, without really giving any f- full, full, clear guidance on that. And, I assume and... mo-
1: a lot of the guidance would come about about the teachers getting actually vaccinated, which would help. But yeah, I want to was... drill down on your data yeah. from uh, Israel for a second. It was a question that I had. Now, of course, zero out of 600,000 is a low number, Adi. We both agree with that.
0: That's right. But it right, hasn't that's... been going on long enough. So you have to recognize it's only been about two weeks of
1: monitoring. And, right. And, yeah, yeah. And, and most so people I mean, don't the die death rate would weeks. be low in two weeks yeah, anyway. I mean, yes. Right. <laughs> but is there any chance? That there could be an overestimate of the effectiveness of the vaccine for the following specific reason. How many of those 600,000 in each group do we know may have already had COVID, which means they already have antibodies? Like I, I'm just taking an extreme case just for our listeners here on Morton Moneyball five hundred and ninety nine thousand of them already had covid and therefore the vaccine's working great on those one thousand people out of six hundred thousand that haven't already had covid. So Hmm. how do we know this in any study, I don't want to pick on the Israeli study because I'm not How do we know this for any study that it isn't those, you know, the infection rate's much higher than we thought? You've even said numbers where you think in the U.S., maybe 25 to 30 percent of the people have already had potentially COVID. So how do we blend that in to the kind of effectiveness of the vaccine?
0: Well, I mean, this is a, a, a control group compared to a treatment group. So presumably, unless there's some confounder that made the control group far more likely or less likely to have antibodies in the treatment group. Um, it, yeah, but I'm, I'm not talking sure about the marginal
1: here. effect now, not the differential effect. I wasn't uh, comparing. Now, you're right. By the way, on right, your right. point, Adi, you're yeah. always very precise. <laughs> you're a precise statistician. You're right. If it's the difference between the two, randomization or the matching should control for all of these factors, unless there's some unobservable that's doing it. Um, I'm referring to, I'm just impressed by the marginal lack of the marginally low death rate. But maybe those people weren't going to die anyway, because a lot of them have already had COVID.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's true that uh, I think in a country like Israel, I think they estimate between 30 and 40
1: percent of the population already had COVID. Um, and, and, and you could argue the people, the self-selection story, you know, is where I'm heading. Right. The people that had COVID that were already going to die from COVID have already gotten it. Already died gone. So I'm
0: not actually reading too much in the lack of deaths in that group. And okay. I, think, I think that's really where you're going with that. Um, yep. what, real, what I'm much mostly interested in is sort of the lack of new infections at all. Um, and, uh, and I think that's where you have a very enormous, a 93, 94% difference between the two groups in, just the, in, the, in the numbers of infections. And that's just an, an absurdly large drop. I mean, uh, approximately one in twenty drop, and that takes a disease. So think about it. I mean, you have about a one to two percent chance, per, you know, of getting it, and then you have a, a one in a, a hundred chance of having a bad outcome from it. M- make that lower than one in twenty, and you got a better chance of making it to be a professional baseball player. <laughs> so
2: you're referring to me while well, no, we know well, those no.
0: and so it just becomes a very low probability. Um, so if you ask me, like what what behaviors have I changed? Well, um, I I do intend to uh, have lunch on Saturday with with a couple friends. Also been vaccinated indoors without masks. I'm going to do that. I know you're a little jealous. I'm sorry, but that's uh, we're like, going do. to do it. My sorry. wife and I also um, and uh, and. And uh, what else? I went to Trader Joe's without double masking. I just went with uh, oh. just a very simple cloth mask, which is much more comfortable. Um, these are hardly big victories, um, but uh, I'm any, looking any for... <laughs> victory,
1: any victory, seems like a victory right now. <laughs> but
0: I'm de- definitely looking forward if if it's possible.
1: Um, and um,
0: I haven't seen family down in Florida in, in over a year. Yep. And I would love to go see relatives that, I've, that we miss. My wife hasn't seen her mother in over a year. Um, and uh, we'd love to be able to, do, to take a trip. And that's a, sort of something that, I, that I'm planning.
1: So we're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics. I'm here with my co-host this afternoon, uh, Adi Weiner, Professor of Statistics. Some combination of myself, Adi, Cade Massey, and Shane Jensen are here every week on the Wharton Moneyball podcast. And as has been our tradition for the last year, we've been talking about COVID for the first kind of quarter of our show. Um, Adi, I wanted to ask you a related question. Um, We've actually seen right now, so I look at the data today, somewhere around 53 million doses have been given. Um, between three and a half and seven and a half percent of people in the U.S., depending on your state, have two doses already. Um, I'm starting to do the math for myself, and I'm saying right now they're reporting about 1.67 million doses are given per day. So I'm starting to give them the math. Let's even imagine that doubles to three million doses a day am I wrong thinking that I have, like, it could be five months, like at 103 million a day times 150 days is 450 million doses, which means 225 million people. And that's basically what we need to get to 70% of the US population. Am am I wrong thinking that I should be thinking about for me, again, maybe I'll maybe through pen, maybe who knows, maybe I'll get maybe I'll hit the random lottery, who knows. But am I wrong thinking that people of my age, and my you know, lack of comorbidities, etc, that it could be a five, month wait for kind of the full everyone to go through the process here
0: Uh, you're not wrong um particularly in pennsylvania where college professors are not in a uh in a preferred group we're one c as you know yes um in in new york city um they did put college professors who teach students in a higher category so they went to that group um, I actually don't agree with that. I mean, I think you should – I think my general view is oh, it should have been
1: age, 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 age. Well, you, of course course you've would have spoken pre- on our show from the beginning yeah. that the number one – you know, location, 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 right. age, age, age. You'd you have age. to go so far. You'd have to add up. Matter of fact, I, you've never done this calculation at least live in front of us, Adi. But mm-hmm. if I take age on one hand, how many other factors would I have to add up on the other hand – to get to equal age? Like if you added on race and gender.
0: I mean, it's incredible, particularly, I mean, one year of age is probably, I mean, it basically is a factor of 10 every 10 years, approximately. Yeah, so you
1: might, there might be, you might have to go way down the list to actually even just equate to 10 years of age. Yeah,
0: I I mean, like racial differences are maybe 1.3, 1.4, so 30%, 40%. A decade is a factor of 10, that's 10, that's 1,000. You know, actually, eleven. It's enormous, right? So, so um, it's those are the. That's a, just a dominant category, which is upsetting to see. You know, one of the things that they did it by hospitals. Hospitals got so many of the early doses. Um, and, of course, frontline doctors are 1AAA, whatever the highest thing, of course, right. without a question. But people around and about hospitals were also roped into that. And like that's how you. I, like me. I, I, do, I do statistics for a wonderful group at out of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and, and I was grateful to be included. I, don't, I, don't, I, I encourage people, if you have the opportunity, not to turn it down. Of um, and, course. I, and I didn't turn it down. And, um but, uh, and so I got that. Now, my wife got it through maybe not quite one AAA, but she's a rabbi and, and does go to nursing homes and, and hospitals. I and think actually, we
1: get to count a rabbi she, she who, goes, who also gives, you know, who goes to serve, who gives services <laughs> who and also goes to nursing. I think we get to count your wife. So yes. she got
0: it. That, she got it well before I did. Um, and that's okay. But generally, uh, age is, is got to be the dominant. So let me get, but the, the much more compelling question for you, Eric Bradlow, and others in our cohort yes. is um, February 26th. What's happening on February 26th. What's happening is the FDA. I hope that's when Johnson,
1: the FDA, is going to decide that's right, on the Johnson the, and Johnson, drug. the Johnson
0: and Johnson, which you might ask, what is taking them so long? That's I what the, I was going to ask you. How did if you I were the president, I have, I have to tell uh, I you, I
1: like an old married couple. That was going to be my next question. <laughs> we
0: are an old but if I were the president, I would have locked the FDA panel in a, in, a, in a hotel room for three days or whatever it was, and said, "You got three days to come up with a decision and approve this." Because every minute that that, jo- that vaccine is delayed, and they've produced it and it's sitting in warehouses, it can get stored in an ordinary. Refrigerator, it's one dose, um, is 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 a huge impact on the on potential health and and the of everyone involved. So I don't know why this delay is happening. The question is going to become. It's only 70 – only. It's certainly certainly super effective enough to, to be useful, but it's 70% effective. Adi,
1: yes is the answer to your question. Which is – and
0: as an old married couple, I know what that question is. Uh, but you want to tell our listeners what well, the question is. Well, you're asking me
1: if I yeah. know if, – if let's say March the 10th I get an appointment and they say it's the Johnson & Johnson, and I yeah. have an uncertain time about when I could get uh, Pfizer Moderna. or Moderna, mm-hmm. would I take the Johnson & Johnson? The answer is absolutely yes, I would yes. take it. I would, and Mm -hmm. 70% I would be thrilled with. And by the way, remember... That's not the effectiveness preventing death. It's much higher to prevent death. Preventing hospitalizations and serious illness is much higher than the 70, 72% number. And mm-hmm. so I would absolutely take it. And by the way, there's, it's not obvious that six months, we might all need boosters, or they're doing, as you know, a mixed study right now where maybe I get Johnson & Johnson today. And then later? There's nothing that would stop me from getting Pfizer or Moderna two months, three months later.
0: Absolutely. In fact, there should be nothing to, to stop it. And by, I have to say, if enough people got the J&J, the Pfizer, the Moderna, it might just vanish on its own now that then we'll just be getting the, the vaccines genuinely prophylactically. So I actually think that this is a campaign, that, uh, a public health campaign, marketing campaign to convince people to take that J&J vaccine, particularly younger people, because while younger people have very little chance of a bad outcome, particularly they are spreaders. Age, they're the, uh, they they're are the major spreaders, spreaders and yep. and it's kind of spreads up the chain. Right. So, um, you know, one of the things my daughter, uh, she's only 23 years old. Old, she understands the risks and she here basically said, dad, i um, goodbye. <laughs> I'm not right. going to see you for, for, because I'm not willing to, to, she has a group of people she spends time with. She's not going to lock herself in, in her house sure. the way I've been able to do. And yeah. I don't, and it, it, for, for mental health purposes, I, I don't, I agree fully that's, that she should be trying to live some semblance of life. Um, And but once she has that vaccine and everybody has the J&J vaccine, it should diminish and disappear.
1: Well, you also bring up something else. And then I want to get to maybe our last COVID question before we move to sports. Why don't they at least do the following? Why don't they start at the whatever age group they determine to give Mm -hmm. to first? At least give the J&J to the younger people and give the mm-hmm. Pfizer and the Moderna to the older people. At least at least let's at least could we agree exactly. on that? Right.
0: Absolutely. I, I don't know what the data is on on children because they're not getting anything. And one of the reasons why they don't do that is they just
1: haven't been studied. Well, they're studying them now, as you they're know, studying they them are now. studying them now. But so I, have I to say, you, yeah, yeah, let me just ahead. ask you maybe a wrap up question on this topic. Are we now because, you know, we know covid cases are falling. We know Mm -hmm. hospitalizations are falling, but Mm -hmm. we still have warnings because of the new uh, variants that things could easily spike back up. In your opinion, based on the data that you've seen, are we at the beginning of the end? Uh,
0: Okay, so in the United States, where the rollout has been so much slower, um, uh, it's hard for me to make that. Here's the delicate balance. The U.S. has not been overrun by the British variant. We have it here, but we're not overrun. And the, the British variant is very is far more contagious and it's and it's just it's it's a it's a rocket ship that's hard to pull back once it's out of the gate um and so that's the delicate balance if we can get enough people vaccine vaccinated before that british variant gets a chance to really roll um then i think we are at the beginning of the end if we don't, then it just it's just going to push it off, but only by a few months. So,
1: yeah, and, then, and by the way, you you asked the same question. I was I was always wondering not only that, but you. I sure you saw yesterday the AstraZeneca one was approved by the World Health Organization. Right. Let's mm-hmm. give that one too. I'll take Absolutely. that one. Absolutely, any of that, them, any of them. I'll take them all. I'll Astra- take all
0: of them. Absolutely, any and all. And just as a, as a side note, um, there's a few. There's still c- clinical trials going on. There are treatments that are that are in the works. Um, that are, that's, uh, appear to be quite effective um, and they're becoming more available. And I think, so I, I'm hopeful that by the summertime, we can genuinely um, go back to a much more close to a life that we had been leaving um, before this all
1: began. well, I think one thing that you bring up is you know as you said, um, matter of fact you you this is one of the data set I remember you talked about early let 's call it March or April of last year that for certain age groups like younger age groups, the flu is actually more deadly than the coronavirus, and it 's the reverse for older people. Um, my guess is if Coronavirus, if we ever get it down to where the death rate is flu-like, I think that's the point in time where people will start going back. I think if you said it was five times, ten times the flu, no, of course not. But I think if – you know, the flu kills people every year. If we get down to flu-like death rates, I think we all have to say – that's been a great accomplishment.
0: Well, if everyone gets the Pfizer vaccine by itself, um, j- assuming it just stays endemic and doesn't go away, because the whole point of a, of a vaccine is to make it just disappear. Right. through Lack of lack of new victims, if you will. Yep. But if you just took the Pfizer vaccine at face value and just make it a, a one in 20, take whatever your probabilities are now and make it one in 20. It's well less than the annual flu. Well, right. less across really age groups. So, it, so I think it absolutely. That's what's so striking about the Pfizer Moderna vaccine is that it doesn't accomplish it the usual way the vaccines work with by reducing reproductive number. It does it by actually making it the disease either go away or make it insignificant. Which yeah, is in an some sense it's a
1: double benefit, which is it's yeah. going to make it go away and even the people that get it don't get a severe case. That's right. So it, it's got both benefits. Well, but the
0: issue with the, with the transmission of particularly young people is that. And I, and unfortunately, this is this is where it's not the real difference between the flu for young people is that flu doesn't tend to have uh, bad uh, lingering effects. Although we don't have good studies
1: point. on these things, we don't um, really know yet. For
0: yeah, the COVID. I, I, unfortunately, I have some friends who have brain fog, you know, post post COVID. That's I, what did you hear about that. the
1: the bad eyesight today? They've talked about
0: that. I haven't heard yet. Uh, mm-hmm. Another friend with some fatigue. Now, fatigue is something you get with flu um, right. that can linger for a long time. So that's a tough one um, because a lot of viral illnesses cause that. But the myocarditis. Uh, I have another friend with a, with a, with heartbeats that that he's been difficult and he hasn't been able to. He's been concerned. And these yeah. are issues that are, that you. T- can, that are happening more frequently than you saw with other viruses
1: yeah well it, it's been great to have you all to myself to talk about covid <laughs> yeah. um but let's let's transition a little bit on to sports and by the way i'm going to take charge here because i i i know i knew it was going to be you and me so i wanted us to talk about baseball <laughs> so i've actually got a bunch of interesting things here which i don't know if you've seen yet so baseball prospectus came out with a bunch of projections projections for the 2021 season and I'm going to go through – I want to kind of do this in a rapid-fire way, maybe a half a minute on each, Adi. Right. Which of these projections do you like the least? <laughs> and say why. Uh, okay? okay. It's going to be fun. No, no. It's just me and you. All right. Here All we right, go. The first one – the first couple are near and dear to my heart. They're project- projecting the Yankees, our Yankees, to win the AL East by 11 games. <laughs>
0: All right. Is that, am I supposed to? Are you going to
1: give me a bunch? And I'm going to tell you. No, no, one? no. One at a time. Wrap it around. All right. You, I,
0: this is easy. Okay. So they're predicting. And how many games are they predicting the Yankees win?
1: Oh, well, that was going to be my second one. But you can merge them together. All right. They're I think 11. I think
0: to predict they the
1: Yankees to win 97.
0: Okay. So I think that the prediction is too high. Um, you don't predict a single team to any given team to win that many games. I think a a, a very high forecast would be a 93-94. And I don't think you would ever predict the winning team, a specific winning team, to win by 11 games. So I think it would be a bad prediction if you said – that the winner would win by 11 let alone that that winner be the Yankees that would be so I think that is a terrible prediction although I love it
1: <laughs> all right and so, as a fan and so for, this, for the same reason therefore you hate the idea of predicting the Yankees to win 97 games absolutely I would if I were to predict despite it, despite last year I just don't remember how many did the Yankees win last year uh over 100 it was yeah I
0: oh no it's not last year last year was a you mean in the season, but
1: but either way, I, I think that's a high number. All right, how about this one, which you might even hate worse? Mm. They have the Mets winning the NL East by ten games.
0: Frankly, I hate that worse because they it's such a it's a regression for them or, or a progression. I don't know. Yeah, it's progression. A, it's uh and that to me, I I mean at least the Yankees have years of years of uh, success in a row. You generally shrink projections. Shrink meaning move towards the overall mean or some combination of a, a team's recent past and the overall mean. And so you generally don't make these extreme predictions. Now, if you asked them, asked it differently, how many games will the winner of the AL East or the NL East win? Then I might say ninety-seven or a hundred games. If instead right. you say how many how many games will the this team win? It tends to it tends to should be and it should be a smaller number and so I I, I think that's a bad prediction although I would predict the the the, the Mets to be the winner um, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it at ninety seven wins
1: yeah I like the way also you put it because it's very different it's interesting because for the Yankees it's sort of a regression not that we either you and I would take ninety seven wins right now sure. but it's it's a regression for the Yankees but a progression for the Mets which makes their predictions even though they're very similar 96, 97, win by ten yeah. win by eleven those are very very different. predictions predictions for those two teams mm. all right how about this one the winner of the nl central which they predict to be the brewers but will okay. win less than 90 games there will be Again, no I, one I, in the nl central winning 90 games
0: I, I think that's another i mean i would predict it's actually not as bad a prediction i think as the mets winning 97. Well, i just said I you're going to tell me which one of these i think i think a better prediction for that div- winner of that division would be about 91 but that's not horrif- horrifying so so right. I'm, not, I'm not as
1: upset with that one as the other. I don't even remember. When was the last time a winner of a division in baseball won less than 90 games? I don't know. I shouldn't have been that long ago. Does Maddie Datsar have an answer
0: for us? Uh, I don't know. He could look it up. He could look I, it up, but I, I, I don't I, think it's
1: that long ago. Really, I would guess it's rare for the winner to win only like eighty-eight we're, or we're 89. remember. There's a lot of
0: yeah. You know, Eric, you and I we have the, we remember the days of of two divisions uh, in each in each league in each uh, league, and now it's down. It's up to three. So and there's smaller competition. So I think it's probably happened more than we think. Uh, but I don't. Of course, in our in our parents' day, there were just
1: two. Two leagues in each each, each of eight teams, I think, how many. Well, let's now talk. um, They have the Dodgers projected to win 103 games. Oh, God. (laughs) So so this is the one you like the least, right? Yes, without a
0: question. Not that I don't think the Dodgers are a terrific team, but predicting a team to win 103 games is
1: just incredible. All right, right, how about this one? Um, They predict the home run leader. They predict it to be Mike Trout. And they predict him to have 43 home runs. Okay. So well, let's know, talk, let's break it down. How do you like the prediction of Mike Trout? And how do you like the prediction of Mike Trout in 43 home runs? So there's two, no, no, there's three parts. Let's be clear. Do you like <laughs> Mike Trout as being the leader? Do you yeah. like 43 home runs being the leader? And do you like Mike Trout at 43 home runs being the leader?
0: All right. Well, let's just, to start it off, let's remind our listeners they have a new ball. Uh, but the what, ball what, is. What,
1: so tell me about this. You, you texted me about it earlier yeah, yesterday. I, what, what new ball?
0: Okay, so uh, a couple things. So they, they've, they've, they've actually designed the ball. One of the major problems with the ball is that it was too variable. So the, the standards for ball production, which are actually made by hand in Costa Rica, um, are fairly wide. And so some balls could be a little bit tighter round and other balls a little less tighter, some with slightly higher seams, some with lower seams, slightly different weights, slightly different core intensities. All these things are the, are the attributes of a ball that determine how far it goes. Um, and it turns out the variability in the seam height was this this wild card because the lower seam makes it harder for the ball to move from the pitcher's side, and it goes further when it travels in the air. Um, I I would actually believe that much of the home run has uh, phase has come less from the ball and more from attitude. Uh, batters are are training to either strike out, walk, or homer. You've said uh, this quite a bit, and and but the ball does matter, and I think they've I think that they've actually. Um, They've actually tried. Uh, um, they deliberately tried to make the ball less bouncy. Um, and there's a number that, that uh, me- measures the bounciness. And I think it's expected to drop a 375-foot 370 foot, uh, fly ball down to about 373, um, um, which doesn't sound like much. But since a lot of balls every year just clear the fence... Um, I think it should drop the number of home runs by none, not in a... a, a so you're a,
1: not surprised by the number 43?
2: No, I th- actually
0: think 43 is a good number. Um, I will say I will take the field over Mike Trout. And I, oh, of course and I would, would obviously, I think everybody would take the field. But honestly, if I had to predict one player, um, I don't think Mike Trout has ever won a home run title. Um but not think I had so to pre- either. But if I had to predict one player, um, quite honestly, all other... I mean, he probably doesn't have a bigger than 10% chance... But I would say he probably has the the most of any one. So if I had to be the modal player with the modal number of home runs,
1: I would say Mike Trout with 43 is not a bad predictor. Now, here's another prediction they gave. And this is the last one. And then this will be the end of our first quarter here. Um, Guess how many players league wide, both leagues, they predict with 30 or more home runs? Hmm. Wow. Okay. Well, uh if they're
0: predicting number one to be forty-three, we can back this out. That's about a, a a half a percentage point, roughly, or more less than half a percentage. Well about a quarter of a percentage point. I'm gonna I'm gonna back out standard deviations. This is where I'm going. <laughs> All right. Yep. If the mean is gonna now here's I don't know what the mean is, so it's so I'd have to be guessing on that. So I would probably say that they're looking at two and a half percent of players getting through thirty or more home runs. Uh, so they're probably predicting about, uh, eight, I would say eight to 10. Yeah. Right? Yes. But the answer is 38, 38
1: that I could not believe well, that's it. That's inconsistent when
0: I saw that. with 43 is the high. That's yeah, the problem. There's
1: no chance. I mean, I, I'm not saying no chance, but come on.
0: No, no, that's, that's, that, that seems shockingly high uh yeah i would would say
1: that for example just to give you a a, a rough even if they were equally distributed it would say every team would have at least one player with 30 or more home runs and uh, maybe i mean could every team have one player with 30 or more home runs they could no i mean that sounds outrageous
0: here how many did i say did you really say 48 is that no
1: i said 38 38
0: that's about 40 that's just it seems like an impossibly large number um Boy, if I had to bet against one thing, uh, uh, I might, uh, that might be an over-under. I mean, that's supposed to be an accurate number. Yeah, it, should, that... it should be approximately a median. I mean, if I were making it, you know, predicting an individual player's success, well, that's, of course, they're all long so shots. So that
1: one, I, I, by the way, I thought this was going to be the one you liked the least. And I, I, I like... have to
0: say I like that one the least. 38 well. home runs, that's the one. If that's a single 50-50 bet, uh, that's the bet I'm betting against with the most amount of money.
1: Well, this has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We've talked a little bit about COVID. Um, since I took uh, some leisure here, that I knew it was going to be Adi and me, so I decided that we would talk about some baseball. And by the way, maybe when it's just Adi and me in the future, this will be our future uh, game that we play. Which do you like the least? <laughs> so stay, stay You're listening to Wharton Moneyball. On Business Radio. Welcome back to the second quarter of Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-host, Adi Weiner, Professor of Statistics. Some combination of the two of us, Cade Massey and Shane Jensen, are here every week here on Wharton Moneyball Podcast Edition. And uh, again, we're here on SiriusXM Business Radio, and we're excited. We just spent the first quarter again talking about COVID and sports. And this next quarter and our third quarter, we'll actually be doing something new uh, for us. Uh, We actually have a number of students uh, here from the Wharton that officially affiliated, if you'd like, with Wharton Sports Analytics and Business Initiative, Wasabi, which is co-run by Cade Massey, Professors Cade Massey and Adi Weiner, Michelle Young, who's the uh, staff director of the program, and we've got a bunch of questions. So, Adi, um, this is very simple. I will just uh, read the first question, then you and I will just riff. We have not prepared any answers to these questions. Um, I will even say it's safe to say, even though our producer, Matt Datts provided it to us in advance, I'd say we have barely read these questions in advance, but we will do our best. And thanks again to the students for joining. Us. Um, Here's the first one. In a time of ever increasing use of sports analytics, I think we agree with that. How do we integrate such analytics with the more traditional aspects of different sports to ensure that teams have the best chance of winning? So how do you integrate, let's call it advanced analytics with more traditional analytics?
0: It's interesting because um, traditional aspects, I think the traditional aspects of sports, as opposed to the, the, the advanced analytics, Um, You know, I think it's becoming harder and harder to win without analytics, Um, and it's just... The, the game is, it's, it's almost like Moneyball has become the, 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 the necessary condition. It's no longer sufficient anymore. For the old Oakland A's, had they were the only one playing Moneyball, and they were able to, to, to lever that into an advantage. Um, if you're genuinely not doing analytics, there's so many teams out there doing it, I think it's just, it's just you're already behind um, the game too far to catch up. Um, so um, I think, of course, the integration is really, the teams that are able to do both, um, they're able to scout both with their eyes and with their, and with the tools, the computer and statistical tools, are the ones that are most advantaged. Um, to, to I think to singularly ignore the one in favor of the other is 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 probably never going to get you to the to the mountaintop, if you will. Um,
1: So what stops us? So the way I was thinking about it, and please correct me if you think I'm wrong. So let's imagine we have a bunch of traditional statistical measures, um, and maybe it's of player performance or something. And now we've got a bunch of advanced analytics. What stops us from being pure empiricists, jamming them all into some either, you know, out of sample machine learning model, some random forest, or jamming them all into some regression model and seeing whether the there's any incremental R-squared or interme- incremental out-of-sample predictive validity from traditional measures over kind of more advanced measures and vice versa. There's any reason we can't just be brute force empiricists uh. and we don't have to have any love for the old days or any love for the newfangled ones. Yeah. Let's just see what predicts best.
0: I, I think, unfortunately, we don't have the the, the data set size and, and uh, to really get a good answer to it that way, um, if you had to ask me, and I'll turn it on you, I'll just expand on that question. What is the traditional, what traditional aspect um, is least capture or, or analyzable or, or, or uh, understandable through statistical means? That's in, that's most yet nevertheless is important. And I and I would have to say, well, I'm going to ask you that, but I'll start with mine. I would have to say makeup. I mean, that whole psychological performance. Um, we 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 later in our show we're going to interview. Um, Uh, An author um, who's going to talk about how to become the best at something. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they'll have a chance to ask him about is and hopefully we we remember to do so is, uh, you know, what is the importance of psychology in in becoming extraordinarily good? And um, I'm not sure the statistics capture that.
1: Yeah, so for all of you who want to know, in our fourth quarter of our show, we'll be interviewing Tim Wigmore. Uh, Tim is writing a book about uh, both elite athletes, and he also writes for the Daily Telegraph in Great Britain. So we'll be asking him all kinds of questions like these. I would say for me, I was going to say kind of the eyeball test and scouting data which is, you know, whether it's mm-hmm. humans watching a player in baseball, whether it's someone scoring somebody every play using a human in football, whether it's, you know, someone watching a tennis match or someone performing there. So I, for me, Adi, the answer would have been not the psychological makeup, which again is very, which obviously you cannot directly observe. Um, it would have been scouting data and the, and the value of scouting data adding on to performance data.
0: Well, I think some of the teams have definitely acted on that. Um I don't think they will publicly tell you, but the rumor is that the Astros at some point had basically gotten rid of their scouting um in the major leagues um and maybe in the high levels of minors as well, but certainly in the major leagues, arguing that there was no point. Um other teams send send traditional scouts.
1: Well, let me ask you another question. Is there any reason why we couldn't try to predict scouts ratings? from traditional measures so maybe we maybe it's a i'm asking answering a slightly different question which isn't does scouts ratings help predict something out of sample like future performance maybe it's scouts like all we have to do is to say how fast does the pitcher throw you know how consistent is the pitcher's release point matter of fact maybe advanced analytics can replace the need for scouts i agree all right well we'll, we'll see all right let's move on to uh, question number two um if you had to cut across sports What do you think the biggest expansion, what sport, this wasn't exactly the question was asked, but I'm going to change a little bit. Um, What sport do you think has the biggest opportunity for expansion beyond current statistics, beyond the the way that things are currently done? And any thoughts on what those statistical measures or what those new technology enabled data might be?
0: well okay so interesting um i think that i would probably guess uh football has the has the best uh, uh, opportunity they're just starting to implement some of these things Um, and i think that's because football probably has the set of tools um set of measurements that are kind of the least useful um yet everyone talked about them like you know measures of yards per carry and yards after all these stuff that they have I think we're going to get a whole suite of, 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 of runs uh, of everything over over uh, over expected in, in, in football which will absolutely change things enormously um and I'm, I'm looking forward to that in football to to really be able to say, say well uh, take away the context how much i mean adjust for context how much value did you did you add now you could argue that the same thing could be said for basketball as well um but i think basketball has so many more repetition right? So there's 100 possessions or so per game per side, right? Yep. Um, meaning you get so many more a- opportunities to see the basketball players. So I think traditional statistics ultimately are, are not going to are still doing. I've done a pretty good job with basketball. I think with football, I mean, come on. I mean, as much as everyone at this point agrees reluctantly that Tom Brady is the, is the, is the greatest uh, uh, quarterback of all time. But can you measure it? <laughs> no <laughs> not even close, so I think that future analytics if they if you could roll back his career and if we had them for twenty five years I think it, you you'd have a much better chance of
1: actually measuring that so let me say what 's interesting is I would have named the same two sports you did to start with, which would have mm-hmm. been football and basketball, and that 's a lot of it is because of the i 'll call it both the interaction among players right right and also the other sport I would have named would have been soccer because. You know, I'm, I'm still partial. We've had lots of uh, analysts and lots mm-hmm. of analytics people on Wharton Moneyball. And over and over again, they keep talking about the space created yeah. and the shots created by a given player. Like even if Messi or one of the great players, even if he's not scoring, they're creating space and opportunities for other players. Hockey might also be very high on my right. list of there.
0: But I'm going to just point out something about soccer, which I think is really fascinating. Soccer, particularly in Europe, um, there's it's, un, it's interesting how there's basically no cap on how much you can spend. So teams that spend a lot of money win in soccer uh, and teams that don't spend a lot of money don't win in soccer. So what that translates into is you don't on the field, on the pitch, I guess you would call it those. It's easy to identify, not easy, but they are able to identify the best players in soccer and therefore they spend money appropriately and they get appropriate return on their investment.
1: In so de- do you think – by the way, do you think it's possible – like a lot of times in football you hear he's a system quarterback. In basketball, he does great under this system. Do you think I could, you could take a soccer player – measure his ability and yeah. put him on any team and he would still be great or is there a system this where maybe there's maybe there's not as much certainty as you're making it sound
0: well i don't I, I, it's hard for me to know i don't know enough about about soccer and they don't actually so much of the soccer data is still quite proprietary it's very used to get competitive advantages by the team which is one of the reasons why although we know it exists and we i've talked to ted New, uh ted Nutson of mixed nuts and uh, and uh, uh soccer, soccer analytics stats, uh, stats bomb, i think they're called um and he, he gave a little back behind the scenes tour over at Morton Moneyball Academy over the summer. And it's unbelievable what soccer has is developing. But you're not going to read about it in the sports pages because it is it is it is quite proprietary. So while soccer has an enormous capacity, I think, to 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 produce new statistics, I don't think we're going to see them um, because because the data is just held uh, close to the to the vest by
1: the teams. Well, let me ask you a related question to this. So which sport do you think that, let's say at the time of drafting new players, whether it's NFL, Uh MLB, NBA, et cetera, which sport do you think is going to kind of get its act together the most and use data most appropriately for prediction? Because I keep thinking about this, this data that I've seen, like right now, who knows how long it will last, but like of the top, like quarterbacks that have been drafted in the top five in the last like. 10 years Carson Wentz is the only one still left on his team and as we know he ain't long for the Eagles and so it's Mm -hmm. obvious and we keep hearing you know Trevor Lawrence is going to be one but now they're saying this guy from BYU might be two now they're saying Justin Fields might be down at like drafted eighth or tenth or something like that which sport do you think lends itself to the better like literally sparse data forecasting
0: well oh god Um, (laughs) actually you know what I I don't, I I mean, it's interesting because you talk about football. We have the most information about a
1: football player. Absolutely. They played Um, a lot of games
0: there. I mean, and they're the oldest. They've been watched the longest and with serious competition, um, and it's, basketball is, is generally the, considered the easiest to predict because the gap is so broad and enormous between the you know it's only two but rounds. But it's interesting you um, you
1: mentioned it. It's for two different reasons. One yeah, has exactly. to do with data, and the other one has to do with you know the top two or three players are just usually so much better. So than much better, else. And,
0: and and so few of them, and so important. Um, so I think I think the biggest strides. It's uh, you know what I think the biggest strides will happen with probably with football. Because the same things that I think you'll start to see in the professional, you'll be able to do it in the college. The problem with college, which which undermines my own forecast, is that the competition is so variable.
1: Well, not only that, as you know, there's in many sports like tennis is an example. There's a self-selection of who chooses to go to college. In other words, if you could be a professional tennis player at age 17, you would. You And if you can't, a lot of them end up going to college to refine their skills. Now, that's changing a little bit, but that's another issue. Let's move on to the next question. This is an interesting one. So we're obviously we're talking about COVID and sports. So this is a COVID related question. I'm going to ask you two questions because they were asked together, but you can ignore the second one if you don't feel comfortable talking about it's about. Whether Penn's done a good job, um, with all the new strains and dangers of COVID nineteen floating around, what should people and especially college students feel comfortable doing right now? And what's your take on Penn's, Penn's pandemic response as a whole? Oh my! All right. Well,
0: you know what? Uh, um, uh, let's see. Uh, okay. So, which I'll start with what the Penn students should be feel comfortable doing right now. Which it's I don't know what they're what they're actually doing or the restrictions that what they actually are. Um, But my general sense, if they're not seeing if they're generally not seeing unvaccinated elderly types, and unfortunately, Eric, you and I fall, relatively speaking, and How from the point of view- How dare of the, you yeah, say yeah. that? Um, if you're not seeing your parents, or you're not seeing, uh, you're not really seeing anyone 50 or 45 and older with, with any regularity or at all, and- Why I couldn't know,
1: you say 55?
0: Why yeah, do you 50, have to yeah, say 50? I, I I uh, because quite honestly, I, <laughs> I've seen that exponential curve, and it, it, it's, uh, if we were 10 years younger, it would be, a it's a, it's a big difference. Uh, Um, And my my sense is for the students is they should be doing a lot more. Um, I'm going to be right blunt about it. I've spoken to them and and I'm assuming essentially a virtual um, uh, classroom experience Um, so they can generally control their environment. But I, I, I think the students should be doing more. Um, I'm not sure what they're doing so so it's hard for me to to say exactly but but uh, since I'm not really in touch with them. um, But uh, I I generally I've gotten a sense that this that certainly at some campuses I'm not sure about Penn, um, but I would love to have seen the athletics be meeting this this semester. And I'd love to I think they should be meeting in the in for the spring semester. When you say meeting, do you mean you practicing mean pl- for sure and playing if anything outdoors, for example? Absolutely. I don't think you know, I think there's been um, the data on 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 young people is I mean, I, I I mean, we're the we're only we're only there are only 10 colleges that are not that don't have sports. Um, in division one and eight of out of those 10 are is the ivy league so
1: let me let me just i'll just take the counterside not as you know i i, yeah. I would love it if there was a squash season but uh, you know mm-hmm. they're at least practicing some now in a okay, very modified that, way I, so that's good i would in a, in a modified that. way in a yeah. modified way no no matches because you can't have this type of one-on-one contact but i'm gonna i'm gonna let me just take the other side and just see how you react i think we both agree the risk to the students is low yep. but what about the person that has to drive the bus what about the people that have to staff the hotel what about the meal servers that have to work um you know even though they're wearing a mask what about all the people that in some sense when the business of college sports picks up all of a sudden there are all these people that have to pay a price and they don't have a choice about what to do and they may be in this at-risk population so it's not the worry of the students it's the worry of the ancillary infections and damage that could be as a result
0: well, I mean, I guess my response to that is that it's it's something that you know all you know hundreds of colleges have cho- have done, and and we haven't, um, and that that means it's uh, so. That's my particular response to Penn. I also think that it, it it's uh, there is a lot of vaccines that are available, particularly particularly who are at risk. We this area certainly did that. Um, and I don't think that if someone is particularly in a risky situation, they should. Find, we could make an allowance for them not to do that job. Um, and and I, guess, I guess really what I'm talking about is some new data. And I actually did some of this analysis myself. We talked about it on our show. Among people 20 to 45 years old, um, there's been an extraordinary spike in fatalities in this group. About 80% of them have nothing to do with COVID. Um, and it has to do with the severe stress that a life of enormous um, isolation has created in this group. Yeah,
1: that's what I was going to ask. you. And I was going to ask you how do you counter? How are you thinking statistically about, in some sense, the COVID risk versus yeah. the isolation, depression, the all depression, of those types of risks. The,
0: the the overdoses, the suicides, the just general depression among among people of our students' age and older has just skyrocketed. It is a, a terrible time. For students missing so much of the primes of their lives because of this this uh, epidemic, this pandemic, and I believe we could have done more for them. Um, and we've been way, I think we've been far too um, we we've our, our 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 loss function has been far too asymmetric, to use a technical word. We've we've put too much weight on the negative consequences and not as much enough weight on the negative consequences of depriving students. Do you think part of that, from that might be? Th-
1: well, do you think part of it just might be the, in some sense, risk aversion, which means the following, which means even if they had the same expected outcomes, we know less than we do about COVID and its long term effects than we That's know right. about other things that have been around for 50 years. And so even if you're not just playing a mean game, you have to play a variance game. And so, you know, you study this. Suppose you wanted to do what's called minimax loss. You want to choose the action that minimizes the maximum possible loss. Maybe it's not an expected value game we're Playing, Maybe it's a minimax game we're playing, and that's reasonable.
0: Well, I mean, I, I think that we haven't been... Whatever we, game we play, whatever the optimization or loss function we choose... You have to think about the the here, the intangible losses, and I don't think they've played in uh, properly as much. And I, I mentioned earlier my daughter who graduated college, um, so she didn't she wasn't forced to do things. Um, she she has ta- she has chosen the, the limitations. And one of those decisions was to basically not see her parents until they were vaccinated. Um, and that's, I think, a, a, a reasonable choice for her to make.
1: Well I have a son who's in college who's done the same thing and of course we don't know the counterfactual maybe they didn't want to see us to begin with but we will who will, who will ever know Well this has been, this has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We're going to come back with more student questions in our third quarter so stay with us and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to the third quarter of Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics, and I'm here with my co-host today, professor of statistics, Adi Weiner. Some combination of myself, Adi, Cade Massey and Shane Jensen are here every week on our Wharton Moneyball podcast, which we've been recording by Zoom for the last year or so. Uh, we obviously hope that we're back in the studio soon, having live guests and together. But for now, we're happy to be with you here on Wharton Moneyball. And we're doing something unique today. In the first quarter, Adi and I talked about some COVID and some sports, specifically MLB. Um, in the last quarter, we're going to interview Tim Wigmore from the Daily Telegraph, who's also written a book on elite athletes. Um, but now in the second and third quarters, we've been taking student questions who provided to us in advance we also have students joining us here on zoom and so adi as we move on to our questions let's talk about the next one um you know we're nearing the end of february where at least from the middle of february where normally this would be march madness time and one of the questions the student asked um, as we approach march madness are there some favorite analytics tools that can be used to predict the outcomes because as you know um, a lot of people just use chalk which is whoever's the betting favorite which, by the way, as you know, I mean, I don't think I've beaten chalk the last I don't know five or six years. As a matter of fact, I do pretty poorly. Although, as you know, if your outcome, if your desired outcome is to win your pool, you have to inject variation, or you're never going to win your betting pool. Well, I'm going to. But point how out. do you think about March Madness? All right,
0: so I've gone not exactly chalk, but but close to chalk in my last uh, two years in our family pool, which is about 15. I've won two years in a row. Um, so when you're dealing with a small pool chalk or, or actually, it's not exactly, if you, if, it depends on who you define as. So the expression going to chalk comes from, um, when the bookies would write on the, on a chalkboard who is, who are, who are the favorites. And essentially following the, the, the favorites is what it means to, to play to chalk. Um, but there's a, usually a few, um, uh, betting favorites that are not the ranking favorites. So, so maybe a, a an eighth-ranked team is actually considered better than a seventh-ranked team. And there's there could be a few of those. So, what I mean by by going to chalk, I mean go by a a serious, you know, Ken Pomeroy or somebody somebody good, um, and and use their expectations rather than the betting market or or the the or the rankings. As so going you would to pick chalk.
1: just to be clear, if uh, twelve play to five. And some Ken Pomeroy or you know ESPN basketball index had the 12 over the 5. Your chalk is I'm taking the 12 over the 5.
0: Absolutely. And that's what's worked for me. And that's a good strategy for a small tournament. It is a disaster tra- strategy. You're never going to win in a large tournament because the average number of upsets in, in a tournament is about 25%. So there's lots and lots of upsets throughout the tournament. Um, and if you're not picking uh, picking a, a good chunk or you're not going to win, um, the real, of course, trick is, um, are you playing a, a a tournament where you get one entry or are you playing where you get as many entries? Are you willing to pay for? And if you're in the latter, that's actually a fine, very interesting strategy. Like, how would you win such such of that? Because you need a, a set of of entries that are different from each other, but in the yet are encapsulating a fairly large probability that one of the group will win.
1: Well, so what's very interesting that you bring up that question because it reminds me of one of the first statistical problems I ever worked on, which was let's imagine, and this is let's imagine it's possible, but I think you and I will agree it's false. It had to do with the lottery, and mm-hmm. let's imagine, you know, let's imagine there's forty-eight numbers in the lottery. You have to pick six, to win, and if you get all six right, you win the big jackpot. But you actually share it with lots of other people potentially. But let's say exactly. you win the jackpot. And let's imagine you could know which numbers were unpopular, so which numbers people didn't pick. So how did you – the first problem I ever worked on and wrote a paper on was how do you pick bundles of lottery tickets to spread out, in some sense, this probability given what you believe other people are going to do? So mm. it's not unrelated. You want to pick – you want me to have a selection of brackets that have enough diversity in them because if 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 you if I pick two brackets are the same, I might as well just have one, so right. I don't want to do that. And I want to have enough diversity to cover, in some sense, the range of possible outcomes. It's a great statistics question, by the way. It's one it's, of my favorite statistics. It's questions. great.
0: I have to say, so the first introduction I ever had to the March Madness tournament was when I was in grad school. Um, my, one of my colleagues in graduate school, um, his name was John, and John entered the, the, the Stanford uh, community uh, March Madness pool, and you get to, you get to uh, make as many entrances as you want. Each entrance costs a fee. And he entered a lot, um, but he spread them out so that it had a, uh, uh, had a maximum uh, probability of winning. Um, he actually used the, what's called the Kelly Criterion. And uh, we, we had taken an information theory class together, even though he had been an undergraduate and I was a, a graduate student. Um, and he won the tournament. So, <laughs> that, that was, so he, I remember, actually, I didn't do it myself, but he was the one who introduced me to that strategy. Um, and it's effective. Um, I will say that, by the way, this is how actually the lot, the actual lottery is broken, um, because they find a flaw in the number generating system um and that and it's uh, not
1: as, it's not that big an effect but go
0: ahead. Oh no, you're you, uh, well, no, actually it depends on the state. You have to be careful. Um there is uh, there, it, the state of Texas at one point was having a lottery where whereby they would sell uh something like five thousand five million 5 million lottery t- lottery tickets and there were like like three jackpots. No, um, no,
1: no. that's you're talking about let me just be clear what Audie's talking about. Yeah. So the biggest lottery systems, and then we'll get back to the student questions. The biggest lottery systems are what's called a paramutual payout system, yeah. which means they don't care if there's a million winners because you just split it a million ways. What right. Adi's referring to is, let's say it's pick six, and they say, if you get four right, you get $10,000. Yeah, if there's a million winners, they're screwed. they yeah. got to give away a million times 10000 So right. that means you have to have lottery systems that are paramutual which means you share like in a horse race right how much you win if you get the trifecta isn't determined before the race how many people bet the trifecta you kind of share the pool you need to share the pool model right. as opposed to that
0: but these are the way you the way you beat the the NCAA uh, um uh we just got a note from one of the students saying that you can actually go to a website which will help you uh, diversify your your choices depending on the number of, of um I wanted to ask of, of, you,
1: though, a, a yeah. question that builds on something you said earlier. And I've asked you this question many, many times before, but it always, I hide it because it's the same question over and over <laughs> again. So you mentioned something about there being 25% upsets. So this is, a, I think you can know where I'm going, but let me ask you this question. So I think if I add up the math right, aren't there 63 games in an NCAA tournament? Let's forget the yeah. play in games. I think it's yeah. 63. Okay. Let's imagine you fill out your sheet. And would you ever say to yourself, you know what? I've only picked four upsets. I know empirically there's 25. I've got to shrink. I got to change my predictions to match the marginal distribution of upsets. Because if I don't do that, I know that you're right. Could there be only four upsets? There could be, but it would be like four standard errors away from the average. Therefore, I, although I can't tell you which game I've got wrong, I got to change something. Do you, would you think that way? I would, but would you?
0: Well, that's complicated because what you're—I I try to ask complicated yeah, questions. If It was so that,
1: obvious I wouldn't be asking <laughs>
0: you. So again, if you are trying to win the tournament, uh, if it's a large tournament, and y- if you're not going to make more than four upsets, you are i um, certainly not going to—you're not going to win because the—the the winner is going to have to have closer to the to a larger number of upsets in order to win. So if I'm dealing with a, with a, with a tournament where millions of entries. I'm absolutely not playing to chalk and I'm not playing with only four upsets. I'm going to bump that up considerably in order to make it to, to in order to have a, a good chance of winning. On the other hand, I, I don't expect to I don't need to get everything right, right? So Correct. So and no one is gonna get everything right. That is essentially never gonna happen. So it it's uh you don't you don't wanna make you don't wanna predict exactly the the uh 25 percent or whatever the number is but nor do you want to do four you probably want to find it
1: somewhere in the middle all right so So, let me come up with it let me propose an algorithm and then we'll move on to the next one but i'm so interested in this how your thoughts (laughs) let me propose an algorithm and then you tell me whether you think this is stupid okay let's imagine there's 63 games i'm the first thing i'm going to do is randomly pick randomly pick 20 something upsets 16 upsets 25 percent
0: and the first round you're talking about is that
1: I'm going to distribute random upsets throughout the bracket, and then I'll do pairwise switching. Like, I'll fix the number of upsets... But then I'm just going to randomly assign them. And then eventually I'll, I'm going to fix the number of upsets in my bracket. And then I'll just take any two pairs of games and say, this one's more likely to be an upset than this one. I'll keep it. This one's more likely to be an upset than that one. I'll flip it. That guarantees me at the end, I will have sa- a fixed number of upsets. Is that a crazy way to think about it? Or am uh, I, I just thought, overcomplicating something? You are,
0: I think you're overcomplicating it. Um, I mean, I think it'll end up in the, in the same spot. I would probably think about it as number of upsets per round. I see. And and think about it that way, because um, I think – because as you move forward, I think it's – here's a, as the move forward, the teams get closer in quality. So upsets become actually paradoxically more likely. So right. in the first round, so many matches, so many games played are between highly imbalanced teams, uh, 1 versus 16, five, 15 versus 2s. That's not where the upsets come from. The upsets come from the middles and then in the later rounds. So I would probably think of it in terms of uh, – in every match, in every combination, go all 60, go all the way from the end to the beginning, put a probability of an upset, and then um, toss a coin so you have the right expected number. That would be the, the, you know, I think it would come out the same way, but I don't think you would have to do that kind of playing around that you would have to do at the end.
1: Okay, I'm gonna, the next question is an interesting one, um, but it's one that I think, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to modify it a little bit. Um, do you think that sports books have better analytics groups than most professional teams? Now, when I say sports books, by the way, let me also modify that. Um, If you, who would you trust to build a betting system more sports books, professional teams, um, the best stat departments in the world, um, Google, Facebook, Amazon, who do you think actually, where is the, seat of modern applied statistics today and if you want to talk about it like the question relating to sports teams great but if in general like who do you trust to build the best prediction models and sports books professional teams tech companies top stat departments like wharton who, who are you going to trust
0: all right well I, I, i'm not going to rank us very high in that <laughs> and the reason why i don't is that i don't think we're as we're not we're i don't think we're quite trained at really Taking a single optimization criterion and sticking with it. Um, as academics, we tend to go where the intellectual interest is, not on the not drilling down on one point hardest. Um, I think the winners in this—it's not the sports teams because they have a completely different—they have so many different criteria that they have to be working with that to actually to figure out you know who's going to win the match or the game is. I think that again, that's too specific for a sports for an actual team. So really, the question is: uh, Are you going to talk about the people actually trying to make money, or you want the tech t- the tech crews um, to kind yeah, of? Yeah, let's say it?
1: Amazon or Google or Facebook or LinkedIn, whatever they, they 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 decide to say their team. Let's see if we can find out arbitrage opportunities in the betting markets.
0: Yeah, well, I can tell you that here and right outside of Philadelphia, there's uh, there's uh, Susquehanna Investment Group. They have a very highly developed sports uh, group. I think they're actually technically based out of Dublin because that's where the, where the uh, betting has always been a lot easier and there's a lot of European stuff. Uh, I would imagine it'd be very hard to beat that crew. Um, I don't know what they do, but I know what, what they've done and I've talked to some of that group um, and maybe this year we'll, we'll actually uh, be able to bring them into Wharton to talk to us. Um, so I, I put a lot of the money on a group like that that uh, that is really invests um, billions in all kinds of things and and really is very focused on how to make money. Um I don't think uh what I what I a tech company I mean I think they're I think they're I don't think they they again have that 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 skill and making a single number um which is money, um, quite as honed and as, as finessed as, as, a, as a, a gambling entity. So I'm, I put my money on the actual sports book.
1: Let me relate another question. It's, it's based off this question. If you had a fixed budget, which let's say everybody does, and you had to build an analytics group, would you invest heavy at the top or would you kind of distribute the money? Like, would you like to have, like, would you hire, I'm making this up, would you yeah. hire two amazing top level statisticians and then like eight people that can do work? Or would you hire 10 very good statisticians? Like, you know, I'm just interested how you would distribute, since we're a business show also, yeah. we're working Moneyball here on Sirius right. XM. How, would you, you know, I'm talking about now team design. Do you, or let's talk about in sports, do you spend all your money on the best quarterback and wide receiver and let the other players be average or do you spread it around?
0: Well, you know what? I, I, my general view is, uh, spreading it around.
1: Um, I, if, is that if the learned... uncertainty you're just uncertain?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you want, who knows it's, there's a certain randomness to this. Um, I think, which is important, but I do think it's important to have a quarterback. Um, so would I hire uh the the three best people that I could afford or one really great one and nine um uh, I it would probably be the the latter. I think you need a quarterback in this and I do believe you need to the rest of it should be spread around. What is your opinion uh Eric? What do you think?
1: Uh yeah, I tend to think that great ideas comes have come from the tail of the distribution, so I would probably okay. hire uh the three? I I would probably hire the two or three hopefully, I've gotten it right, really talented people, and then mm-hmm. spread it around. I think okay. I definitely would. All right. Difference the next question is kind of interesting. It's, it's, it's a COVID-related question. Um, if you were president of the United States or governor, mm-hmm. how would you handle COVID from today moving forward? So let's not be backward looking. Let's not criticize. Where would you invest your assets in COVID? If your goal, by the way, and by the way, In answering that question, not only say what objective function would you be trying to minimize or maximize as well? How would you handle COVID going forward? President Weiner.
0: President Weiner has has locked the FDA in a closet and told them to make a decision on J&J tomorrow. And assuming that that decision is positive, I would be rolling out those vaccines anywhere I could get them as fast as possible. I would be putting federal dollars in... Um, Federal vaccination um, centers um, or federally funded vaccination centers, Um, I would allow I would be encouraging vaccinate vaccines to be done by age and nothing else, because it is the only way to do this. And um, it's simple quickly. It's simple. And and more importantly, um, I would also one of the things that we've been so slow about is because we have we we have this very tedious system of making sure that we have that you have to sign up and you have to have the criterion and you have to go through the the place. What this means is that in order to do this, so regimented and accurate, accuracy, accurately, accurately, um, accurately, accurately. You, you have to you have to do it slowly. So if I if I were to say we can we can vaccinate ten thousand people down at at, a, at an arena, well we're going to need to to make this to do it so 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 um, so roughly we're going to have to have eleven thousand people show up, um, and or, or we're going to have to tell a lot of people to show up. We're going to have to un, undefrost or whatever it is a lot, and I'm going to have a waiting queue every single day. Um, And one of the things that I learned, you can learn from the way Israel did it was every vaccination center had a a, a time at the end of the day and a queue where they just went to. Um, So what this did was it allowed them to not worry so much about managing the supply chain. Yep. Because they knew that there would always be people at the other end with their arms up um, and their, <laughs> their shoulders, literally with their arms up and shoulders exposed to get poked. And that meant that you didn't only do 100 that you knew that 98 would show up. You can do 1000. And if only 9000 show, uh, I mean 900 show
1: up, you'd have a queue out there and you won't have to be tossing them. So I have another question about what you would do. I read something today. And I've never heard this before, and I'm surprised I haven't heard this. Why couldn't we do the following? Like Merck, for example, you remember at one point they had a candidate, didn't work out so great. But I'm assuming if Pfizer or Moderna gave their IP to Merck, Merck could start producing a shitload of vaccine. Why don't we start using these other pharmaceutical companies? We use the Defense Production Act and say, look, Uh, I understand Pfizer and Moderna. We'll pay you billions. We don't care because the economy's got to get restarted. That's worth trillions instead of billions. Why can't you go to your competitors and show them how to produce it and then everyone starts producing it? Why isn't that a good idea? Uh, uh, uh,
0: President Bradlow, yes. President Bradlow should do that. I didn't think of that. Um, and it's great to have your, your insight. I think that's a, if that's plausible, uh, I, would, I would do that. I know that they're talking about um, starting new plants. I think that's a great plan. The other plan that I would do uh, if I were president is I would make sure that people, that there's a lot of people that don't want to vaccinate. Lots and lots.
1: Yeah, I, And I,
0: it is shocking um, how many people are refusing to do it because of essentially rumor. Um, the two rumors that go around is the rumor of infertility. I don't know if you're hearing this, um, that somehow it wasn't tested on, on pregnant women, which is true, um, but there's a belief that somehow the vaccine is going to cause infertility which obviously, if it did, would be devastation. So, but there's a belief that that's just so, so completely unfounded. The other is, is uh, um, there is a belief in sort of long-term effects that we just don't know because right. we haven't watched it for, for 50 years. You can't let the, the extreme events uh, drive the, the apple cart. It's just nuts. Um, so well, I would do a vaccine education program um, and be much, with much greater uh, spread. And, well, and let fatality. me ask you one
1: more question on this, President Winder, then we'll move to the next mm-hmm. question. Would you take the doses and give everybody one dose, even if that meant that some people had to wait two or three months from getting dose number two? Yes. Okay.
0: Now I'm not sure I would have done that with the front line front to frontline healthcare workers, but I can tell you here in Philly, two thirds of our vac, over two thirds of our of our of our vaccines have gone to young people because they're affiliated with the health services. Anybody who is not a frontline worker and was under 65 years old, you got one
1: shot. Move on. I, I like your thinking. I like the thinking on that one. All right, let's talk about another one, which is a possible thing we can measure. You know, home court advantage has been one of these things that's been around forever. People have said, how much is the home court worth? And, and also, more importantly, what drives it? Is it the referees? Is it the crowd? Is it the travel? Is it the home cooking? Is it the sleep? Something you've studied. It could be lots of different things. Mm -hmm. A, do you think there's still a home court advantage? And also, like, what do you think we're going to learn about the home court advantage now that we're in a period where sometimes you we've had all kinds of like they're not experiments but we've had all kinds of conditions we've had the bubble where everybody there were no fans but every no one had to travel we've had no fans where people have had to travel we've had a semi bubble we've had all kinds of things what do you think we've learned about the home court advantage
0: okay i I, i'll start i think we've learned that the bubble says there's no home field advantage in the bubble flat out when, the, when they played in Disney World, no no team – and that made sense. I mean, there would, in fact, there was no mechanism for there to be a home, home field advantage. They were all playing in the same arenas. They weren't traveling. And that, of course, is – Well, we I'll come
1: that. up with a – it's not a home court advantage. But do you think it could have provided an advantage to an older team? Well – Older players no, – Because they didn't older, have to play. No, no, uh, oh, no, no. Older players, first of all, there were no back-to-backs. But also, right. older players may work, react worse to travel.
0: Uh, right, so it could have potentially helped the teams that were older, um, and they could have been better that this season. I mean, it's not not unrealistic. Um, I don't think there's that much variation uh, at that level among teams. But what I, what I would think about the the home field advantage? I mean, we've certainly looked at it, and the data is starting to come in. There's essentially we know that the the crowds are important, but there's a lot of argument about who does the crowd affect the most. So we do know that the crowd affects. The referees absolutely, um, and we do know that, um, and there does seem to be some diminishment in penalties and in fact, one of our one of our assistant producer and uh, Zach Drapkin is working on it right now and with football and 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 there's already some results shown about soccer with yellow cards and things like this, and there does seem to be movement towards the mean because of, of the no fans or far fewer fans on referees and referee decisions and I can tell you that in football the home Home field advantage went down to about one point, down from about 2.5 points
1: or so. Can you give our listeners just a sense of, from a probabilistic standpoint? I think 2.5 makes it like 56 to 44. 56 to
0: 44, and one point would be about 52. All right, so
1: that's actually a pretty big difference. That's a
0: substantive difference. Um, And baseball, uh, well, you know, here's an interesting thing, because baseball is one of the few sports that genuinely has an advantage – by being home in the sense that they bat last right, right. So there's no batting last in football everything is completely symmetric in all their sports but baseball you do get to bat second and the only thing that that actually helps is what we would call resource management so if you are if you're batting in the bottom of the ninth and you know you need um and it's a tie game you know you can play to win as opposed to the away team when it starts the ninth tide, knows that not only has to score, but it also has to score as many runs as possible. Um, Otherwise it doesn't know what's gonna happen so there is a little bit of an advantage for for the home field that absolutely can't go away um so um, we could potentially learn something from, from from baseball uh i don't think there were enough games last year in baseball to really know and they also got rid of a lot of the travel some of the so the other component of home field advantage is is familiarity yep um, with the arena with the with the stadium um Baseball teams can be tailored to the idiosyncrasies of the ballparks, the, the great left-handed hitters of Yankees, of the Yankee yesteryear, um, because being a right-hander is so awful because of Death Valley, um, and tailored, the Yankees tailored their teams to, to their home park. Um, uh, Fenway Park, which is so great for right-handers, was always tailored. So those things are are not going to go away because they're built into the structure of the of the way the teams are created. Now, Colorado always has the best, the largest home field exa- advantage, always across sports by far. And simply because people who come into Colorado, if you're not used to it, you just get sick. Right. Um, and, and, and that, that isn't going to go away from, from, from Colorado. Anything else? Um, well, well, I think the idea is we really should be able to tell whether or not it's familiarity or the stands and that, or, or, the, or the, uh, the, the referees or the umpires. And I think we'll, get a, we'll have a chance. By the time all that data is, is parsed through, particularly with the NBA and the, and, M- and the MLB and NFL, we might have a sense of whether or not the, who the fans are helping.
1: Well, you know what's interesting is because of COVID protocols, the Australian Open, there's an umpire in the chair. There's no referees. There's no lines people. It's all being done using Hawkeye, the automated system, every okay. match. Yep. And the players love it. There's no more right. challenging. The right. call's made. You can challenge if you disagree with the computer, but I mean, the computer's <laughs> going to give you the marking. And, yeah. the, and, you know, the players love it. Let me ask you two more questions, maybe about 90 seconds each. We're learning about COVID. Is there something, if you had known it now, that you think we would have done differently? I
0: think that we've had, I mean, I think that there's been, we're not on an island, we're not in Australia where you can, where you can block the, where you close the airport and the game is over, or New Zealand or any of these kind of countries. Uh, we're a major country with open, essentially open borders, and that wasn't going to change. I think that if we were much faster to recognizing that indoor gatherings are the, with bad circulation, are the primary sources of spread and gotten to that much earlier, we would have been far better off. I think we should have been. Um, I think that we, if we had gotten to masking indoors, we would have been far better off. Um, I think the this I think that we could have compensated for keeping more things, uh, particularly things that could be outdoors and with good circulation, open longer um, and without even closing. Um, I think. That, I mean, I'm just gonna. I hate to, you know, to to knock down uh, other other uh, you know elite schools that are our competitors, but Berkeley banned outdoor exercise by its students. I think that is just crazy. Um, Given what we know about the virus and how it spreads and the mental benefits of, and health benefits of exercise, that's just just nuts. And I think some of the severe lockdown uh, approaches have been taken by certain localities, states, et cetera, just haven't worked. And uh, and if we had concentrated early, keeping people out of parties, you know, so many people g- gathered with families with large numbers. Yep. Um, If we were if we focused on the things that worked instead of being this blanket, um, you know, complete like stop, you know, didn't, don't I didn't leave the house, but that's not what most people are going to do. It wasn't a, re- a reflection of what we could really accomplish. I think we would have been better off.
1: Well. Um, this has been the third quarter of Wharton Moneyball I'd like to thank our students from the Wharton Sports Analytics and Business Initiative I'd like to thank Michelle Young for helping to organize this I'd like to thank Audi Weiner and Cade Massey for running the Wharton Sports Analytics and Business Initiative uh, this has been the third quarter of Wharton Moneyball in the fourth quarter we're interviewing Tim Wigmore uh, Tim is, is a writer he's written a book about elite athletes and you're listening to Wharton Moneyball
0: on business radio
1: Welcome back to the fourth quarter of Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm joined by my co-host, Adi Weiner. Um, The fourth quarter of Wharton Moneyball podcast version is an exciting one. It's one where we interview guests from around the world, people that are interested in sports and analytics, and our guest for this fourth quarter, Tim Wigmore, is no exception. Uh, Tim is the author of The Best, How Elite Athletes Are Made, and also Cricket 2.0 Inside the T20 Revolution, which won the Wisden Book of the Year. He, uh, he has written for Daily Telegraph, uh, The Economist, the New York Times, ESPN, Crick Info, and The New Statesman. Uh, Tim, on behalf of myself and my colleague, Adi Winer, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's it's fantastic to have you on. Um, I'm sure we're going to get into this. You know, people always want to know, is it nature or or nurture? Can you make elite athletes? How does birth order and all these kinds of things affect whether someone's going to be elite? But why don't we just start out with the beginning? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What got you interested in kind of athletics, uh, analytics, and
2: writing a book like this? Sure, yeah. So I'm a journalist for the Daily Telegraph uh in england uh which is my 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 day job uh and as part of that i guess i've written quite a lot on sort of sports science and trying to answer those those why questions I'm gonna, a little bit a bit more deeply and yeah to, to try and get a, a broader understanding of what goes into athletes what, what are the kind of patterns that we can identify um and through this work i came across uh mark williams who's a professor at utah who's basically spent his whole career researching these these questions so everything from the sort of nature we nurture stuff to you know how athletes adapt you know why do athletes choke game intelligence coaching every all, all of those things um and so our collaboration is is essentially in some ways it's you know marks his 30-year career almost just dis- dis- seeing it um, and my job was to Go out and do, do loads of interviews that sort of showcase the, the theme. So, we got to talk to loads of fantastic people for the book. So, from the US, we talked to Elena Del Don, to Pete Sampras, Joey Votto, Steph Curry, Steve Kerr, and and various others. Um, We've heard of all of these people. These are good interviews even, to get. Even you guys in the US. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, and yeah, it's really fun to kind of marry up the, the science with, with the, the personal stories. So, I think, audience- you're,
0: I think Tim, you're, you're, you may have omitted uh, the, the the most highly paid baseball player as of a few days ago uh Tim Bauer uh, trevor Bauer who just uh, who you who extensively discuss in your
2: book um, yeah yeah we, we had a lot a lot of time with him talking about actually the art and science of of, 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 uh, of, of deception and the the art of the comic. We have a chapter on, on that and he was a in great fact in fact i
0: actually that. wanted to ask you about that because I was just reading over that chapter um, one of the things that people sort of I think underplay which your chapter really explains I and mean, where you can talk about it. Is just how, how outsmarting the opponent is so important.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. you know, we, we talk about, I guess, you know, the role of, of the mind in, in sport and psychology, and that, that's all that's all so so important. And with, with Trevor by one of the things he he talks about is you you, you want your your pitches, you, you want them to basically to, to start like Looking in exactly the, the the same, so you don't give batters at any any cues. And basically, th- this is the science of it. It's basically a baseball, even from from Trevor Barry, who's not who's not a the fastest pitcher. But you have about 0.5 seconds to 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 react and uh, sorry between the ball leaving, mm-hmm. being pitched and hitting it. But actually, of course, you have less time than that. So they they did a study in in Japan, which is really cool, where they. um where hitters basically wore goggles, and they found that um, point when they when these goggles basically made them blind. Effectively, zero point two seconds before the the ball arrived, it actually made no difference to how well they they hit the ball, which basically tells <laughs> us that. If it this does is fascinating, by the way. I just want to make sure I understand this, Tim, because we've, you know, we've been doing this, as I
1: said, for seven years. We've heard lots of people. We've had experts on pitching. You're literally saying they blinded them a certain amount of time before they got to the plate, and already, obviously, that's the ultimate way to determine when the batter has to decide whether to swing,
2: where to swing, etc. Exactly. I and mean, the, the point is, 0.2 seconds before, it doesn't make a, a, a difference. Can um, I
0: can I jump in and because as a former player, not a particularly good one, I was always told to follow the ball into the bat. And what you're essentially saying is that's stupid advice.
2: Absolutely. The <laughs> idea of what watch the ball like as a kind of fundamentals, it that's it's it's not good advice. It's it's impossible. So what you have, to, you have to do as a hitter, you have to be able to use cues to to predict and second guess. Mm-hmm. So the whole point of the, the art of deception. As, as a pitcher, is if you can hide those those cues, basically. And so you make different pitches. You make them start in the same way. Well, you are closing off those 0.5 seconds. But already know the 0.2 seconds at the end is, is no at all. So you have a, basically a 0.3 seconds window. And if you can reduce that more and more, you're making it almost impossible. And that probably explains why... Um yeah why why Trevor is now the the best, the best paid uh, player in baseball. So so Tim I'm going to ask you a question.
1: You interviewed people, you know, you mentioned people from basketball, obviously, tennis, baseball, English Premier League, etc, even coaches. Um you I'm going to use your word Tim patterns. What patterns did you guys notice? across these athletes i mean are there things that are common that make a- athletes elite as per your book is it you know if i work if i have a like is it a threshold model like as long as i have some athleticism and i work really hard like what is it that you noticed were common patterns across the elite athletes
2: yeah so first i think with with like elite athletes it's very easy and very tending to say you know there's a there's a checklist you do these five ten things and it, it is more nuanced that it's more complicated the way i, I liken it is There's certain traits which give you more more lottery tickets and certain things in your favor which buy you more lottery tickets. It's not easy to win the lottery for anyone, but but certain things give you more lottery tickets and what would be some examples. What What would be some examples? examples So the most the most fundamental way of getting more lottery tickets comes when you're born. If you have an older sibling that buys you more, more lottery tickets. So we know statistically it's a very big advantage to be a younger sibling and to have older siblings. Um, there was a really, a really big study in Australia and Canada across 33 different sports. And it took a group of elite athletes. So, you know, athletes who'd gone to win medals at the Olympics, played internationally at that standard. And it compared them with a control group of nearly athletes who had basically had success at junior level. And it, it kind of they fizzled out a little bit. And it can was on, what's it's, the rush. Like I could make a couple of things.
1: I'm, I'm saying I'm the youngest of four. I think I'm likely the best athlete in my family. Now, my guess
2: is it's not genetics or maybe you are. Is it genetic? Is it a genetic story? It's not exactly. Yeah, that's why it's great. It's not. So this is not genetics. Okay. So yeah. some other things are going at work. So actually, yeah, the baseball actually somebody's about when there's two sets of siblings who go, both go to play major leagues. The younger one is better in about two out of three cases. So not every case, but a very big advantage. So what's, what's going on here? Well, so if, if you're younger, you, it builds competitiveness and sort of tenacity because you're constantly having have, have that struggle and you constantly have to try and find a way of competing. It's a lot better for skill development. So the research on this is you learn the most basically when there's quite a high amount of failure. You know, in to likeness to tennis, if you're being someone six love six love every time, you're not going to be learning a whole a, a whole a whole heap. Um, so if you're the younger sibling and you're playing up, so Venus and Serena would be a good example of this. So Serena is basically you look at a picture of them when they're so there's 15 months between them. So you look at a picture of them when they're sort of seven and eight, and actually the thing I noticed is there's quite a big height gap. There's two or three inches, and you think, okay, so their whole journey to adulthood, generally that that would be there. So Serena would have been a little bit generally not so fast around the court, not not so strong, not so tall. So she has these disadvantages, and she has to find a way of overcoming them, basically compensating. So you do that with with tactics, with skills, and with the, the mental side of the game, and then essentially you get to a point where you're adults, and you, and in that case, you you kind of you're you don't have those physical disadvantages anymore and you've got this whole other toolkit that you've had to develop and, and that suddenly means you've kind of neutralised their strength and you've got your own extra strength. Um, so from the point of view of skill development, that's a, that's a really big advantage. So this idea of playing up is a really, really good thing um, and that helps to develop more. Another interesting part, strand of this is informal play. So hours of informal play that kids do are actually a very strong predictor of who goes on to be elite. And do you actually, mean their quality of informal play or just the fact that they do it at all? Like the quantity,
1: like you could argue like one measure of motivation isn't, don't tell me how motivated you are, show me how motivated you are. So do you mean um, do you mean how much informal play someone does or
2: how well they do when they do it? I think that the amount of informal play and the nature of it. So the reason why it's, so we, for the part of the research for the book, I went to the Bonner in Paris, which produced possibly the greatest concentration of elite soccer players anywhere in the world. And that's kind of rooted in the magic of informal play. And what do you get from informal play where well, you get, you get a lot of variables, which are constantly changing. So you might be playing up against, against older kids. You might be the number of teammates that that's changing all the time. You have no, no referee. So that's tough. You also, you don't have a, a coach telling you what to do. And the, the research is very interesting is that, one of the biggest pitfalls for kind of budding athletes is too much feedback from coaches because athletes need to be able to basically self-diagnose problems themselves, react and, and adapt. And you, you have someone who's telling you what to do, which sometimes you get too much of in a very formal coaching system and academies that, that, can, that can hinder you. So informal play is another really, yeah, that's an important predictor. And generally it seems like older siblings get more informal in play, maybe because their parents are a bit more relaxed with the younger siblings interesting um
0: uh tim uh, you, you left out of your your top reasons one of the reasons that i thought was most compelling in your book is that the younger siblings um they have much more clear kind of performance standards to to um to aspire to than the first sibling since, since there's nobody to compare it to and you have the whole story of the the seven boys in the track family um the younger ones, they know exactly what their older ones had accomplished, and that gave them a really solid goal to it to a, to achieve. Which is just a it just it's a, a sort of a mindset or a growth or targets that you can you can aspire to. That I think you indicated was uh, was an important aspect of a success for the from the younger age is that the older siblings sort of set the mark, and then you know what you can achieve, so you can you can try to leap over it. How how does that rank with some of the other things you
2: think? Yeah, the competitiveness is is really important. So actually, Michael Jordan talked about how Larry used to beat him in in pick-up games of basketball, Mm -hmm. and that was a huge motivation for him to to try and get get, get past Larry. Um, So you see these traits again and again. Actually, the interesting things is how can you kind of artificially create Mm-hmm. create 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 older siblings for kids who don't have them and this is an interesting question and uh one of the ways of doing that is playing up so yeah rather than playing in your under 11 team and dominating yeah can you can you play up can you have that struggle and with um with older age groups and that can be really important so we talked with elena del, del don and when she was 11 she was playing with 16 year olds and she said that was really crucial in developing her her skills her the mental side of her game we're here on Wharton Money
1: Bowl. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics. I'm here with my colleague, Adi Weiner. We're talking to Tim Wigmore. Tim is the author of The Best, How Elite Athletes Are Made, and, and his book, Cricket 2.0. Uh, he's also a writer for the Daily Telegraph. So we're talking to him about uh, what makes athletes elite. So let me ask you another question. I was watching, I'm a big golf fan. I was watching golf this weekend, and I noticed for the second straight week, Jordan Spieth, who, a winner of three majors, hasn't won a tournament in four years it almost seems like he's learned to lose. Like, just like we talk about how people learn to win, it seems like this is now the second straight week he's been leading going into the final round, and he has not won either week. So I know you've done some work on athletes choking. Um, Is he choking? how can someone stop choking? Um, I'm also a big tennis fan. I've been watching the Australian Open tennis. And I'm like, man, every player that plays Novak Djokovic is like one point away from either winning a set, getting it to the fifth set, it appears like beating him. And I'm like, they're just choking. So how do you think about choking and that whole phenomenon?
2: Yeah, so in our book, we have a, a chapter on, on choking. And one of the really interesting things that in general, when athletes choke, a really common thing is they rush. They just do things too quickly. It's almost like this is this is freaking me out. Let's get it out of the way because the longer I have to think about it, the more that's going to eat, eat into me. So, in penalty shootouts in in soccer, they've done really good analysis that basically says if if you take a kick within one second of the referee of them blowing the whistle and saying you, you can take your penalty, you're much more likely to, to miss. So, actually having methods having durable methods is such an important thing. So we talked with Annika Sorenston and she said, you know, at really important parts of, uh, you know, on, on courses, on really, really, you know, important putts, she always had this urge to rush and she wanted to rush. And the way she stopped that was she had a method, a 24 second method that she would stick to every time. And I think having that, that process that remains the same, regardless of, of what shot it is, that's a really important thing because you're you're taking away the thinking as much as possible out of it. So you're you're focusing on the process rather than the outcome and the importance of, of the shot. Um, so those are all things that athletes can do. And another really important one actually is it's basically pressure training. So you're if you make your training harder than the actual game itself, well that will put you in a better position. So you know something like if you practice your free throws when you're. At, you really tired at the end of a training session. Well, that's going to which the greats have talked about many times. Yeah, absolutely. But that gives you something that's more durable under the pressure of a playoff game when you're really shattered. You're you're used to that, and so having um, yeah ha- having methods in in training that that replicate the pressure you feel in the matches that that's a really important thing that athletes athletes can do to give themselves the best chance.
0: So I wanted to ask you about your take on. Uh, as as Eric talked about earlier, nature versus nurture. Ten thousand hours, not ten thousand hours. I'll just start off by saying um, you don't have to debunk ten thousand hours. Most of us understand that that was just a, a Ma- Malcolm Gladwell uh, kind of story. Um, that it's really not ten thousand hours. It could be much, much fewer for some athletes, and for some athletes, it's a lot, lot more. But the actual importance of Erickson's work, and he's he's the uh, the psychologist that that. Uh, whose works inspire the 10,000 hour rule. If you actually talk to Erickson and Erickson had been on our show and he passed away this year um, was he really believed that anybody could become an expert at something with the right practice, the right teacher, the right balance of, of informal. I mean, I mean, with uh, what he called deliberate or directed practice. And um, I actually firmly, I disagreed with him. I didn't think that was true for lots and lots of uh, arenas um and you one of the things you talked about is that as things get more advanced and specialized um there's just if you don't have it you aren't going to be and i mean probably genetically um you're just never going to be in the top uh uh competitor in the world in something so can, can you elucidate that that kind of
2: debate where does it stand? Yeah. well i like not everyone can be an, an, a, <laughs> an elite athlete and
0: well, mm-hmm. we understand that everyone's going to be seven feet tall and be in the NBA. That's, that's sometimes that, that understand, we understand that. But um, in many sports, it doesn't have that sort of very specific height or physical proportion necessity. You'd think that uh, you know, anyone could potentially do it, like say, if they just practice hard enough.
1: Well, yeah. So like, let me just, <laughs> let's just pick a specific sport. Where, let's say golf. golf. Yeah, so like, could Adi and I, let's imagine we were both 40 years younger or 50 years younger, and our parents had started us off like Tiger Woods at four years old, and we had done the same elite training, by the way, very related, Tim, to what you were saying about his father put him into uncomfortable situations and everything else like that. If that had happened to us, could we be on the pro golf tour now?
2: Well, I don't know what your your genes are. No, (laughs) No, they're not good. But keep going. (laughs) We want to hear your answer, Tim. Not good. Now, one one of the things is your chances depend on on the the nature of the, of the sport. So if so, some sports rely more on physical gifts. You know, if you if you're five foot two, you're not going to be in the NBA. You're not going to be a rower. In in other sports, in golf, in in soccer, and so on, there's actually more ways of reaching reaching the top, and you can sometimes compensate for a lack of physical strength with being able to read to read a green very well, and so on. So there's there's there are more more chances actually of if everything goes in your way, you're kind of less written off at birth. If that, that if that makes make, make sense. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't say you, you would be able to, to do it, but I think with the, with the right training actually, and you know, we know some training can be a lot more efficient than, than other training. You really do increase your, your chances. Um, so actually a good, a good example of this was, there was a study of baseball, of college players, of yeah, hitters, and they had a, a six-week period, um, and they had they each every day they they had forty-five different pitches that, that they faced, um, which were a mixture of curveballs, fastballs, and normals, and and basically they were in two, in two groups. So there was there was a group that would have fifteen of each, and then and then they would they would flip to the next one, and a group that would have forty-five that were just random. And they found that the group that had the random pitches at the end of it, their hitting improved by far, far more than the group that had the block practice, which was us having 15 at fifteen at a time. So this is interesting because the two groups they had, they hit exactly the same number, number of balls. They, they spent exactly the same amount of time. But having that random training was so much more effective, which actually brings back to the importance of informal play because If you're being exposed to more variables or you're having to think you're having to adapt, that's much, much more useful for your skill development than then just kind of repeating the same drill monotonously.
1: So, Tim, I know in the last few minutes we have, I know one of the topics you brought up early on, but we really haven't probed you about it yet. But I know you've written about it is how uh, better athletes even practice smarter. And I, I always remember from my first job I ever took that, you know, the old expression is that not only are this pers- is this person smarter than you, but smarter people tend to work harder. Do athletes, do better athletes also practice smarter? Or, you know, I'll use my home field of marketing. They get greater ROI than I do. I could spend 10 hours training and they could spend 10 hours training. Not only did they start out better than me, you know, in the mathematics term, they have a higher intercept than me and they have a higher slope than me. Therefore, I
2: can never catch them. What, what have you found about this? So the, the best athletes are often incredibly good at a kind of like almost a clinical self-diagnosis of strengths and weaknesses, what they need to do to improve and getting the most bang for their buck, getting the, the most from their training sessions. But actually there's, there's been some studies interestingly which show that elite athletes compared to to non-elite athletes, um, elite athletes tend to fail more in, in their training. So they actually have not only do they have training that's harder because they're better, but even relative right to, to their standards, their training is, is harder. So they're they're basically make they're pushing themselves constantly and and by doing that, giving them the best chance of developing. So sort of taking themselves out of the, the, the comfort zone and and also manipulating the constraints and the variables. So let, let's just say you're you're playing on the, the tennis court where rather than just hitting with your buddy just keeping on hitting the the, the ball um over the net, well if you say we're only allowed to hit in one square well that's and and you move the square around every five, five, 10 minutes. Well, that's actually expose yourself to new variables, new challenges. You can't do that on autopilot. And that that's a much better way of, of improving because you're giving yourself a new challenge and you're having to adapt to it.
1: Yeah, I can tell you as the parent of a D1 squash player, I can tell you they would have these drills where you could only hit to certain parts of the court. You had to hit above the line, no balls here, had to have a two bounce here. So I saw all of those kinds of training. Maybe just in the last uh, minute or two, um, of all the people you met, And all the people, all the things you found, which one surprised you the most? Either which individual surprised you the most, maybe because of their analytical thinking. Like you're like, I didn't even realize this person was as, let's call it a user of data and analytics as I thought. Or I didn't realize like, this is what pro basketball players are thinking of, or this is what tennis players are thinking of. Who kind
2: of surprised you the most? And what did they say that surprised you? I'll just give you two that I found really, really interesting. Yeah, please. So with with Steph Curry getting an insight into how he trains was great, and one of the things was you know he's practicing taking courts deliberate, t- taking shots when he's off balance and falling over deliberately. So that's oh yeah he's obviously doesn't want that to happen in the game, but he he's giving himself the best practice. That if it does happen, he he's going to be able to 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 pull off his shot and in terms of a very very simple bit of advice that stuck with me from Pete Sampras so from his coach when he was 12 13 so obviously we know Sampras his career was built on his great serve and what and his coach was a brilliant little bit of coaching so as he was as as Pete Pete was serving as he was throwing the ball up his coach would yell at him straight uh line body wide so that And that means that in that split second, he has to be able to do all three of those serves. And again, we talked earlier about deception and hiding cues. Well, it meant he had to be able to put off all those three serves in a split second, which meant he had no cues at all that he gave his opponent. That's a really, really great bit of coaching and, and advice, which applies to a lot of areas. If you can, yeah, in, in baseball, in, in tennis and any other sports, if you can hide your cue, that is going to, put your opponents off and give you the best chance of being successful. So Tim,
1: maybe just the last question would be, um, if we're sitting here and interviewing you a year from today, what are we talking to you about? What, have you, what are you working on now? What's the, you know, I, you know, as, as Adi and I are academics, we always say the old papers are great. We're very proud of them, but we're always moving on to
2: the next one. So what's, what's next for you? Yeah, we're still doing a lot to do with, with, with the book. We're actually, uh, we're going to add a chapter for the paperback on staying at staying at the top and the art of kind of tom brady and how you have a 25 year year career in in the top um so that's the kind of the new project um and yeah still kind of writing a lot on i've got some articles on five 538 that are coming out soon about to do with the themes of the, the book as well well, that's fantastic. Well, Tim, it's
1: been great having you here. Uh, we've been talking to Tim Wigmore, uh, the author of the book "The Best: How Elite Athletes Are Made" and, and "Cricket Two Inside the T Twenty Revolution." Um, you can see his work in the Daily Telegraph, the Economist. We just found out we're going to Tim's going to have something on five thirty eight.
2: So, Tim, thank you for joining us this afternoon here on Wharton Moneyball. Thank you. And if I can just cheekily say, uh, the book "The Best" it's on; uh, it's an Amazon offer on Kindle to the end of February, so and it's only th- three. 3 99 I know all 99. about it. I bought, Adi, it. <laughs> Adi bought it today. So thank, thank you again, Tim, for joining us. So this has
1: been four quarters of Wharton Moneyball. On behalf of myself, Eric Bradlow, uh, my colleague, Adi Weiner, we'd like to thank you for joining us. Thanks to our producer, Matt Datz. Thanks to our associate producer, Dion Simpkins. Some combination of myself, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen, and Kate Matthew are here every week on Wharton Moneyball. Uh, between now and next week, enjoy your Australian Open tennis. Enjoy your sports. We'll see you next week here on Wharton Moneyball.